Good evening, everyone. We are picking up in Jeremiah tonight. We're going to be in chapter 21. In the last 100, almost 150 years, uh, there has been a lot of ground taken, a lot of improvement uh, in understanding our Bible as literature, in thinking of the scriptures not just as being the word of God, but the authors of scripture being artistic and having, uh, having a, uh, a method to convey what they want to convey that embraces, uh, you know, literary devices and structures and things like that. And so there's been a great, uh, there's been a great improvement on structural understandings of books of the Bible. How do they fit together? How do things work? Jeremiah would be one of the primary exceptions to that. It's still a book that's organization makes scholars who spend years and years working with it scratch their head. Um, it is clearly and obviously not chronologically arranged. Uh, and there are times where we can spot thematic reoccurrences from passage to passage, but it can be a challenge. However, the four chapters we're going to look at uh, tonight are clearly put together uh, with a very specific organizational frame. And one of the things that we need to understand is that when we're talking about literature, when we're talking about a piece of writing like the Bible and there is a structure, it's not like a box that just contains the truth. Sometimes we think of structure as just being a container. Um, this is structure that actually conveys meaning. It's the difference between the styrofoam container a Big Mac used to come in and the structure of a Big Mac itself, right? When we ask what is a Big Mac, you explain it structurally. It has a top bun, a middle bun, a bottom bun, two patties, two pieces of cheese, right? That's structure. But you remove the structure and you don't have a Big Mac anymore. You have something else, okay? Structure is meaning. That's all I'm trying to say. And so it's helpful to see, even as we get into it tonight, the structure that we're about to walk through because Jeremiah is actually trying to convey something not explicitly, but implicitly, just in the way he puts things together. So for us to understand this, uh, we need a couple of things. First, I need to remind you of the royalty, the characters uh, who are kings of Judah during the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah's ministry opens in the reign of a good king by the name of Josiah. He comes to the throne very young and under the influence of some very good priests. He leads about a strong reformation in Judah. They turn away from a lot of things. They rebuild the temple. They, uh, there's a restoration of Israel's religion. Uh, Josiah is followed by a son named Jehoahaz and then another king named Jehoiakim and then finally a king named Jehoiachin, and then we get to the last king of Judah, the one who is the final king before the Babylonian exile, Zedekiah. Okay. Now, when we open up here in chapter 21, it's, it's Jeremiah talking with King Zedekiah. But what follows in the following chapters is it actually walks backwards, starting with Josiah, and does that order over again. Josiah, 
and then uh, words that are given to Jehoiakim, or Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and then Jehoiachin, and then back to Zedekiah. There's a reason why that structure exists there, and it's somewhat cinematic in nature. I want you to envision this first passage we're reading as if we're watching a film, and this plays out, and then we do the intentional flashback monologue, or uh, uh, not monologue, but the intentional flashback uh, uh, montage, there we go, as it jumps from scene to scene to make a point. So look here at verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him. Okay, first and foremost, that's abnormal. What we've seen in the book so far is God sending Jeremiah to talk to the kings, to talk to the priests, to talk to the prophets. But here, it's Zedekiah who comes looking for Jeremiah. And it, he sent him, Pasher the son of Malachiah, and Zephaniah the priest, the son of Masai, saying, Inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is making war against us. Okay. So, as I mentioned, Zedekiah is the last king of Judah. This siege that we're reading about right here is at the very end of Judah's history before they get exiled into Babylon proper. It lasts for about two years, and by the time it's order, uh, over, all of Jerusalem and all of the surrounding area of Judea is marched all the 400 miles away to Babylon and doesn't return for 70 years. This is at the very beginning of the siege, and Zedekiah reaches out to Jeremiah. Why? Because he's out of options. Okay? Uh, a siege is a very simple military tactic where you just surround a city and you don't let anyone in or out. And so the city slowly starves until they surrender. Okay? He's out of options here, and so he says, why don't you go see, have Jeremiah inquire of the Lord for us. And then he finishes here at the tail end of verse 2, perhaps... The Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds and make him withdraw from us. Maybe if we inquire of the Lord, maybe if we cry out for help, God will deliver us. Notice here he refers to all of God's wonderful deeds. There's been sieges in the past. There was the occasion where Samaria was sieged and God led four lepers out to the siege armies to discover that God scared them all away and the city was delivered. Uh, there was the occasion in the book of Isaiah where King Ahaz of Judah, a great, great, great grandfather of Zedekiah, uh, was surrounded by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians had just wiped out all of the northern tribes, including Samaria, but now it surrounds Jerusalem and God graciously delivers Judah and sends the whole army of Assyria packing. And so he's going, maybe God will do that again. Go ask Jeremiah, inquire of the Lord for us, Jeremiah. Then verse 3, Jeremiah said to them, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war. First, that sounds really good, doesn't it? I'll turn back the weapons of war. All these spears are pointed at Jerusalem right now. But notice as he continues, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands and with which you are fighting against the king of Babylon, against the Chaldeans who are besieging your outside walls. And I'll bring them together in the midst of the city, and I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and strong arm in anger and in fury and in great wrath. And I will strike down the inhabitants of this city, both man and beast, and they shall die of a great pestilence. Okay, pestilence is a common byproduct of sieges. 
okay? Because as the nutritional value of what's available goes down, the health of the whole community starts to slip. You don't have access to clean and flowing water, so the hygiene starts to go away, and so disease is a natural uh, consequence. Verse 7, afterward, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants, and the people of the city who survived the pestilence, sword and famine, into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, and into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their lives. He shall strike them down with the edge of the sword. He shall not pity them, or spare them, or have compassion. Okay. And so Zedekiah goes, maybe God will deliver us, and Jeremiah says, no, there's no deliverance from this. Okay. God has set his hand against you. You were wondering if God will you know, if God will get involved in this war, he is. He's just playing for the other side. It's God who has you surrounded. It's God who is using Nebuchadnezzar to bring consequences. And then notice this in verse 8. And to this people, not just in response to Zedekiah, but to the people of Jerusalem, you shall say, thus says the Lord, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Now the Old Testament is full of this two ways language. Think of Joshua, right? Choose this day, he says to his generation, whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Think of Elijah. How long will you waver between two opinions? If Baal is God, worship him. If Jehovah is God, then worship him. But this phrase is intentionally connected to the end of the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, Moses lays out basically uh, a giant sermon. And the message of the sermon is God has delivered you. God has made this covenant with you. This covenant leads to blessings for obedience and cursings for disobedience. Therefore, obey. That's the theme. That's the punchline of his entire sermon. Okay? And in expressing this uh, punchline, he does it in this language. He says, I set before you two ways today, the way of life and the way of death. In that case, in Deuteronomy 31, verse 15, the way of life is obedience. The way of life is keeping the covenant, and the way of death would be to be disobedient, to be unfaithful to the covenant. And so Jeremiah borrows that language here, knowing that Jerusalem, that Judea, that Israel itself is a long way down the road of death. But notice he says, I set before you two ways, the way of life and the way of death. Verse 9, he who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. Okay. Notice two things there. First, the way of life and way of death have been transformed here. It's not obedience and disobedience. It's not blessing and cursing. It's you can surrender and spare yourself a worse consequence. It's actually a, a lesser of two evils. And so it says here, if you want any spoil of this war, it's not going to be because God gives the victory. The spoil will be your lives if you wave the white flag and surrender. But he's using this language intentionally of a way of life and a way of death, uh, but it's so far down the road, it's not the old promise. Okay? They're at the very tail end of the way of death, and there's still time to decrease the impact of this by surrendering to God's inevitable consequence. In fact, surrender, I think, is a helpful word. 
God has made clear through Jeremiah, his prophet, and through generations of Jeremiah's preaching, through two decades of Jeremiah saying what this all means, that they have the option to surrender to it and go, so be it, God, do as you will. But if they don't, then it will be the way of death. Verse 10, for I've set my face against this city for harm and not for good, declares the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of the Babylon and he shall burn it with fire. Okay. So in other words, he says the city is lost. If you fight, you fight against me. So stop fighting. Surrender. Okay. Now, as I mentioned, this is the opening scene of this section and it's at the very end, the final siege of Judah. And Zedekiah comes as if out of the blue, suddenly respecting Jeremiah's ministry and his, his inroads to God, if you will. And he says, Zedekiah, or uh, Jeremiah, why don't you see if God will deliver us like he used to do in the old days? And Jeremiah gives the same statement he's given in every passage so far. This has come upon you because of your idolatry. This is an act of judgment. It is inescapable, but it can be tempered if you lean into it and surrender. But what happens next is two things. First, the next pa passage we're going to read, look at verse 11 there, and to the house of the king of Judah. Not, to, not there to Zedekiah, but the house of the king of Judah. To the kings of Judah, you could read this. What follows here is a generic, almost boilerplate statement of what's required of kings. It's very similar to what Deuteronomy requires of kings, or what Samuel told Saul he was responsible for, or what the Psalms lay out, or what the prophets constantly reiterate. It serves here as a generic requirement of the type of king, if you will, that God delivers. So look at it with me here, verse 11. And the house of the king of Judah, hear the word of the Lord. O house of David, thus says the Lord, execute justice in the morning and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. Like I said, what we have is a generic statement of God's requirements, his responsibilities for the kings of Judah. And the first one there is that the king is responsible for the execution of justice and the deliverance of of those who are oppressed. Okay. And uh, we need to remember here that Judah being a monarchy is not like our representative democracy that has broken our government into three separate sections and done so for a checks and balances relationship. So if you experience injustice, if you go to the courts and you don't feel like they've done right by you, you can appeal to a higher court, but we appeal all the way up to the Supreme Court, right? To that branch, the judicial branch of the government. We don't, uh, uh, we don't appeal to the executive branch, to the president. But in the ancient world, all of this stuff was under one power. And so we see this often in the Old Testament. Remember Solomon. In the early days of his reign, after God has blessed him with tremendous uh, wisdom, Two women, both prostitutes, come to Solomon, and what are they looking for? They're looking for him to execute justice because one of them is not telling the truth. 
Both of them say, this baby that is alive is mine. It was hers that died in the middle of the night, and she swapped out this baby. And it, I think you may remember when we read through, this, uh, read through this passage a few months ago, we discovered that you can't actually tell from the text which woman is lying. We, we tend to presume it's the lady who's come to get justice that's telling the truth, but we're not actually told. And wisely, Solomon executes justice by finding a way to determine who the real mother is. We actually see the same thing in the New Testament. Okay, Rome was no representative democracy either. Okay? It was a republic, but at the top of the food chain was the emperor. And so when Paul feels like he's not getting justice at the local court in the book of Acts, what does he do? He appeals to Caesar. And so he goes off to Rome to stand before Caesar as his right as a Roman citizen. Okay? So what this means was a significant part of a king's daily life was hearing from the court cases that had been jumped up from the local level. Hearing from those who were traveling to Jerusalem because they were experiencing injustice and couldn't get what they needed at the local level. You may even remember that this is how David's son Absalom wins over the people. So when they come a long distance and they enter into Jerusalem, he's waiting by the city gate and he goes, what brings you to Jerusalem? And they say, well, I'm here for justice. And he goes, oh, you won't find that here. The, con the king's not seeing anybody today. If I were king, I would make sure you got justice. And he just fences all these people into thinking that David isn't doing his job. Um, but notice here how primary this role is. The first thing that's said here of the kings is execute justice in the morning. Now, just a couple of things about that phrase. First off, in the morning, in and of itself, applies that this is a daily habit, right? It's not execute justice on Fridays or the first of every month, right? Not only that, but it's first thing in the first day, in the morning, okay? When we read that God's mercies are new every morning, right? The emphasis is as soon as the day starts, there's already new mercies available for us in the same way the first propensity of the king, his highest ranked item on the to-do list is justice. Okay. And so he says this, and then he says, lest, continuing verse 12, hear my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. Behold, I'm against you, O inhabitant of the valley, O rock of the plain, declares the Lord. That description, inhabitant of the valley and rock of the plain, that's a really subtle picture of Jerusalem itself. And that's how the city is laid out. It's surrounded by valleys, and it's this rocky plateau um, sticking up out of the plain. You who say, who shall come down against us, or who shall enter our habitations? I will punish you according to the fruit of your deeds, declares the Lord. I will kindle a fire in her forest, and it shall devour all around her. Okay. I called you to justice. Now I'm going to execute justice. You were the one who was supposed to stop oppression, but because you are the oppressor, I will reward you to the fruit of your deeds, okay? It's, uh, it's sin and consequence, what's stated here. Now, we're going to see this reference to a burning forest quite a few times to come, and the reason most likely is because the, the royal palace in Jerusalem is called the House of Cedars, right? Because the entire thing on the inside was paneled in Caesar, cedars, and there were entire whole cedars as its pillars. And so it's something Solomon built a long time ago, and we have good reason to believe that Jehoiakim re-updates it just for himself, as we'll see tonight. Um, uh, but the idea here of a fire in the forest is that the, the palace 
this beautiful royal building, the home of the kings, it's going to burn. Okay. Now, the last thing we see here in chapter 22 is uh, Jeremiah addresses the kings, he addresses the city, and now he addresses the people. Chapter 22, verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Go down to the house of the kings of Judah and speak there this word. I'm sorry, this isn't where he addresses Jerusalem. In fact, what we're going to read is going to sound a lot like what we just read. Here is what I would suggest the difference is. When we get down to uh, verse 10, and it says, Weep not for him who is dead, nor grieve for him, but weep bitterly for him who goes away. We will see that's talking about Josiah and Josiah's son, Jehoahaz. Okay. So structurally, again, here's what's going on. Zedekiah comes with a big ask. Then we get the windback montage, right? And the montage is first with Jeremiah's general and generic prophetic proclamation, kings, do justice. And now we're going to hear what he said to the first king that followed Josiah. Remember, Josiah was the last good king of Judah, the final reformer. So it takes us back to the beginning with Josiah's oldest, uh, sorry, his, his uh, fourth born son who takes over Jehoahaz. Uh, and basically what we're seeing is that Jeremiah has provided a consistent witness to every king leading up to Zedekiah. It's not as if Jeremiah has been twiddling his thumbs while Jerusalem is going to hell in a handbasket. He's been out there knocking on the doors of every king, including Zedekiah, warning them of what was to come. It's foolishness that Zedekiah comes in the final hour and still hasn't heard the message. And so what we see here is, you know, basically evidence that the problem is not God's failure, but the kings of Judah. And so this first one here um, mirrors that generic we just read at the end of chapter 21, but here, as we'll see, it's, it's his words to the people in the days of Jehoiahaz. Thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the kings of Judah and speak this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow. That's the trio of the vulnerable, right? The foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. Okay. Sometimes it's rounded off by adding just generically the poor. But they occur all together over and over again as being exhibit A of, uh, of the failure um, of Judah. Nor, it says, shed innocent blood in this place. Verse 4, for if you will indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who sit on thrones of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people. Okay. If the house obeys, then God will continue the lineage. He will not leave the line of David lacking or the throne of Jerusalem empty if they obey. But, verse 5, if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. Now, the idea there isn't that the palace will be uninhabited. The house here is not talking about the building as much as it is talking about the family of David. 
he's talking about bringing the royal line to an end, the house. Um, one of the things that sets Judah's history apart from the northern tribes of Israel is that Judah has a continuous bloodline monarchy. Okay. But in Israel, in the northern tribes, the houses keep being overthrown through assassination. And so we get these dynasties one after another. But here he's saying, I'm going to bring this dynasty to an end if you don't obey um, verse 6, for thus says the Lord concerning the house of the king of Judah, you are like Gilead to me, like the summit of Lebanon, yet surely I will make you a desert and an uninhabited city. Okay. You're like the beautiful places. Remember the Gilead, Gilead is the region where the balm of Gilead comes from, this medicinal value plant. Uh, and here the summit of Lebanon, the highest heights of the forested, mount, forested mountains. He says, but I'm going to make you empty and desolate. Verse seven, I'll prepare destroyers against you, each with his weapons, and they shall cut down your choicest cedars and cast them into the fire. Again, what are the cedars of Lebanon here? Not the ones in Lebanon proper, the palace in Jerusalem, right? Verse eight, and many nations will pass by this city and every man will say to his neighbor, why has the Lord dealt thus with this great city? And they will answer, because they've forsaken the covenant of their Lord, their God, and worshiped other gods and served them. Okay, so remember, we've gone way back in the clock, four kings earlier, to the days just after Josiah's passing. And what's Jeremiah's message? Twofold. Repent or there will be judgment. And you're going to be judged because of these sins. And then notice here in verse 10, weep not for him who is dead, nor grieve for him, but weep bitterly for him who goes away, for he shall return no more to see his native land. Now, as we're going to see in just a second, he's saying this in the days of Jehoiahaz. Okay. Josiah dies. He makes a bad military decision and dies in battle while he's out with Pharaoh Necho, uh, far away. And so that leads to Jehoahaz taking over. And remember, Josiah was a good king, and so he was deeply grieved by the people. In fact, Jeremiah himself wrote a public lamentation, a poem of lament, and published it so all of the people could grieve together. But that same Jeremiah here says, stop weeping now. Don't cry for the one who died. Cry instead for his son, because he's going to be deposed and sent away, and he will never return. Okay. In fact, uh, Jehoahaz is only on the throne for three months until Pharaoh Necho's had enough of him and removes him from the throne, takes him to Egypt, and replaces him with his brother. Okay. And so here, what is Jeremiah's message? Pull the e-brake, Jehoahaz, or we're all going to be grieving for you more than we did your father, God does not leave himself without a witness. So verse 11, for thus says the Lord concerning Shalem, the son of Josiah, that's another name for Jehoahaz, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah's father and went away from this place, he shall return here no more, but in the place where they have carried him captive, there he shall die, and he shall never see this land again. Okay. So exhibit A in the timeline, Jeremiah's faithful witness, and notice he says this is going to happen, and it does. Zedekiah doesn't just have the condemnation of his predecessor, 
but also Jeremiah's threats, his thus saith the Lord coming to pass. Okay. Next is Jehoiakim. Okay. Now Jehoiakim, like I said, is uh, Jehoahaz's brother, and he's put on the throne by Pharaoh Necho for probably one obvious reason. He's pro-Egypt. Okay. And so he deposes Jehoahaz, replaces him with this puppet king, Jehoiakim. And as we'll see, Jehoiakim has only one ambition in life, to live like royalty. And so Jeremiah starts his ministry in the days of Jehoiakim. Verse 13, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness, and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing, and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms. Now, when we open in verse 13, this could just be a broad metaphor for wickedness in Israel at large, those who build their houses on unrighteousness, okay? In fact, there's some of the minor prophets that accuse the wealthy of, just, or of doing just that. But as we'll see here, this metaphor just keeps going. It's not just something the wicked do, but a particular wicked person who just keeps doing more and more of it. And so there's an addition, and there's the upper rooms with its windows, right? Notice who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Verse 15, do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? He says here, Jehoiakim, does this make you royalty that you built yourself a big, beautiful palace, that you've made it into lifestyles of the rich and famous? Is this what it means to be a king? Now, we just read what it means to be a king, right? And contrary to that, Jehoiakim, it appears, uh, exploits his own people to make this happen, okay? And so it talks here as if he uh, turns the residents of Judea into servants to build this new palace, and it's not a paid thing. He just makes them employees of the state and they just crank it out on his behalf. In fact, this makes a lot of sense because here's another thing Jehoiakim does uh, according to 2 Kings. He buys off Pharaoh Necho and raises taxes to do it. He doesn't reach into his own wealth or into his own riches and while he's doing this building project of revamping the royal palace, he's reaching into the pockets of every Judean and taking this huge amount of money to give to Egypt to buy them off so that they'll be their ally. Okay. And so that's what it's talking about here. Do you think you're a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Now you go, now wait a minute, Jehoiahaz was a bad king. Jehoiahaz is not Jehoiakim's father, his brother. The father there is Josiah again. Wasn't your father a good king because he was a good king? A king who did good things? A king who kept the covenant and was focused on taking care of the people? And so notice here, then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well. Is this not to know me, declares the Lord? Notice again that juxtaposition here in Jeremiah between the knowledge of God and a life that's lived, which is a life of righteousness. Like Jesus says, Depart from me, sons of wickedness, I never knew you. Right? There's a relationship between wickedness and a lack of relationship with God. But when he says here, didn't he do well? Remember that Josiah lives a long life as a king, and he dies relatively late in his adulthood because of a military mistake. But he has a long reign as opposed to the 
guy who follows Josiah, Jehoahaz, who's on the throne for three months. Okay. Now, if you're familiar with the kings of Israel, in particular the northern tribes, three months is almost definitive for bad king. It's, it's amazing how often there's one guy who, uh, who leads for seven days. He holds the record. But usually three months is about the mark of a wicked king. That's as long as God tolerates him. And so there's this contrast here. You know how this works. You have a good example in your father and a bad example in your brother. What else do you need? And yet he obsessively just builds the brand, the brand of Jehoiakim. Okay, verse 17, but you have eyes and heart only for dishonest gain, for the shedding of innocent blood, and for practicing oppression and violence. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or Ah, sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or Ah, his majesty. With the burial of a donkey he shall be buried, dragged and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Okay, now notice two things here. First, another king in this line, we just talked about a lament, right? Josiah was lamented by a huge funeral. Jehoahaz was lamented for a worse fate of being exiled. He says, but they're not going to cry for you at all. You've built your whole life building the brand of Jehoiakim, you know, being on the cover of magazines, the one that everybody wants to look at, but your funeral will be completely forgotten. It'll be the funeral of a donkey, right? He's setting himself up for a Princess Diana-type story, but, but it's going to be a donkey's burial at the end of it. In fact, he says, with the burial of a donkey, he shall be buried, dragged, and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting because if you look at the reign of Jehoiakim uh, in 2 Kings 24 and 2 Chronicles 36, respectively, it's really weird because reading them on their own, it almost seems like a contradiction. In 2 Kings, it says that Jehoiakim was buried with his fathers, and that's how the story end ends. Uh, in 2 Chronicles, it says that he was imprisoned and dragged off to Babylon. But it's Jeremiah that resolves this for us, okay? And especially, as we'll see later in, um, in 36, Jeremiah 36, what actually happens to Jehoiakim is he is buried, as he should be, in the household of Jerusalem, and then immediately dug up by the Babylonians, and his body is dragged out of the city, okay? Just as Jeremiah says here. So again, exhibit A, Jehoiakim is not coming home. Exhibit B, because of your wickedness, Jehoiakim, you're not going to be, you're not going to stay buried, but your body will be exposed and dragged outside of Jerusalem. Verse 20, go up to Lebanon and cry out and lift up your voice in Bashan. Cry out from Abiram, for all your lovers are destroyed. I spoke to you in prosperity, but you said, I will not listen. And remember, the idea of lovers in the book of Jeremiah is political aliases, which always involves idolatry. Because war and worship go hand in hand in the ancient Near East, okay? And so here is a guy who buddied up, who snuggled up with Egypt, and he says, Egypt's going away. There's no trust, uh, no safety in Egypt. Verse 21, I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not listen. That has been your way from your youth that you have not obeyed my voice. The wind shall shepherd all your shepherds. Okay, get, get the image there. What does a shepherd, shepherd do? He drives the sheep, okay? But the wind is just going to blow away the shepherds as if they're being driven by the wind, right? 
Your lovers, these other nations, shall go into captivity. Then you will be ashamed and confounded because of all your evil. O inhabitant of Lebanon, nested among the cedars. See again that reference to the palace, the house of cedars. How you will be pitied when pangs come upon you, pain as of a woman in labor. Okay. So, Zedekiah comes, and then we get this instant replay of all the conversations Jeremiah's had over the last 20 years with Zedekiah's predecessors. And in each one, a call to repentance is given, and then a consequence is meted out, and the consequence is fulfilled. And we only have one king left, and this is Jeconiah, okay? who in this uh, book usually is referred to as Jehoiachin. Here, he's actually referred to as Kaniah. All those names are ones we find across the records for the same person. Jeconiah, Kaniah, Jehoiachin, all the same king. And so verse 24, as I live, declares the Lord, through, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, so this would be the grandson of Josiah, king of Judah, if he were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. Okay. In the ancient world, for royalty, a signet ring was both a signature and therefore also a credit card. When a king signed something into law, how did you know it was the king who did it? Because he had his seal on his signet ring. Okay? And so this isn't the type of thing that you kept laying on your desk. Unless you wanted things to be bought you know, on your Amazon account by total strangers. Unless you wanted things to go into law that you did not agree to. Kings don't take their signet ring off because it is their official mandate personality on paper. And God says, look, Jeconiah, look, Jehoiachin, even if you were my signet ring, even if you're that significant to me, and to a degree he is, he's the king of Judah, he's God's representative on earth, of God's representative nation on earth to the nations. You know, Israel is known as the apple of God's eye, his beloved, right, his people. And he says, but it's not going to stop me from pulling the ring off my finger and throwing it away. Verse 25, I'd tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those who you're afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. Remember, we've already encountered this fate of Jeconiah earlier, uh, sorry, of Jehoiachin earlier in the book of Jeremiah, where, where Jeremiah says, you and your mother-in-law, are going to experience what's coming to you. And here again, he says, you and your mother are going to experience what's coming to you. He says, verse 27, but to the land which they will long to return, there they shall not return. Again, Jeremiah says, you're going to be deposed. And this time it's not deposed by Pharaoh Necho, but by Babylon himself, okay? Jeconiah is carried off, and when he is, so is uh, all of the gold and silver uh, elements of the temple. All that's left behind is the bronze. So is all the wealth of the palace. So is all the upper echelon of the palace courts, okay? Uh, this is the first big deportation to Babylon. And so all that's left is King Zedekiah, as we'll see in a minute, and your average citizen in Jerusalem. That's, that's all that's left. Um, but again, notice he says here, Jeconiah is not coming home. And when we come back to Jeremiah next week, you'll see that there were false prophets saying, 
Yes, Jeconiah has been taken, but he will return and everything will come back from the temple. In fact, this false prophet, Haniah, says it's going to happen in two years. Within two years, God is going to thwart Babylon and all of this will come back and Jeconiah will be put back on the throne. But what does Jeremiah say right up front? Not coming back. Done and over. Verse 28. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised broken pot? A vessel no one cares for? Okay, the idea of a broken pot there is is something that's both worthless and useless, right? Sometimes we keep broken vases and stuff around for sentimental value, but this word for pot is just a common pot. You just replace it, right? And so here he is, a broken pot. He, he serves no purpose. And then notice this, why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land that they do not know? O oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless. Now, as we saw in 28, it's not because Jeconiah doesn't have children. His children, his family go with him into Babylon. In fact, the history books of uh, Israel, I believe it's in uh, 2 Kings, tells us he has seven sons. Okay. But he says, you might as well write this one down as childless. Why? A man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. You see what's said there? Not just that none of his sons, but none of his sons' sons or their sons' sons, anyone in the line of Jeconiah will never, Jehoiachin, excuse me, will never sit on the throne of David. Okay? It's a curse of his entire line. Okay? Now here's what's really interesting. If you look at the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, remember it traces the genealogy through Abraham and then through David and all the way down to Jesus. But you will find this man's name on that list. Jeconiah, Jehoiachin. Okay. Right before the exile to Babylon, right before the 14th generation, you will find his name. But what's interesting is if you turn to the Gospel of Luke, you get another genealogy, this one not going back to Abraham, but all the way back to Adam, but Abraham all the way to David is exactly the same. Okay. And then suddenly it veers off course. And instead of David being followed by Solomon, it's David being followed by his other son, Nathan. Okay. And so the lineage goes a different direction. If you look closely at those genealogies, you will find the one in Matthew is clearly the genealogy of Joseph. But the one in Luke uh, is missing a definite article, which was a common practice for giving the genealogy of your mother instead of your father. Okay. And so Mary, who actually carries Jesus in her womb and births Jesus, her genealogy is pure of the line of Jehoiachin, not connected. But Joseph who carries the direct line of the kings of Israel, not just, not just through um, David, but through Solomon, right down the royal line, all the way to Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, this king right here, until the deportation. And so Jesus has the royal right to rule, being his father's son but he also avoids the biological curse being his mother's son and in a, in a significant way, not his father's biologically. Okay. But what's more important here is, is, again, remember where we started. We started with Zedekiah 
Zedekiah is the last and final king. In fact, just like Jehoiakim was set up by Pharaoh Necho when he deposed Jehoahaz, Zedekiah is set up by Nebuchadnezzar when he deposes Jehoiakim, his father. Okay. And everything goes swimmingly for a while until under the influence of Egypt, who's finally starting to get back in the saddle, they come to Zedekiah and they go, you know what, Babylon's having real problems empire-wide. We should revolt. You should join the team. It, we're strong enough together. We can throw off the reins of Babylon and everything will be fine. But he was wrong. And so eight years into Zedekiah's reign, he tries to revolt and Babylon responds heavy duty, surrounds Jerusalem, and two years later, the entire city is deported. Okay, that's how the history of all this goes. But I want you to notice here we see all of this evidence of Jeremiah's faithful ministry, of the condemnation of their practices, of the calling to repentance or else, and it ends with a curse to the royal line, but that's not where it ends. Look at the next chapter. Verse 1 of 23, woe to the shepherds, okay, a common designation of the rulers of Israel. If Israel is the sheep, the kings are their shepherds. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You've scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds. There's a play on words there, right? Tending sheep is what you do, and then God says, since you didn't tend my sheep, I will tend to you. Since you didn't give attention, you now have my full attention, God says here. He says, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to the fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. Okay. And so the leaders cause, through their leadership, the evil of Israel to mount until they're deported. And God says, but I'm going to be a good shepherd. I'm going to gather up the lost sheep. I'm going to bring them home and I'm going to shepherd them and they will be fruitful and they will multiply. Verse four, I will set shepherds over them who will care for them and shall fear nor no more nor be dismayed, nor shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Which is just a simple way of saying he'll be a good shepherd, right? Not a single sheep will go astray. Not a single one will be missing or unaccounted for. Verse 5, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. Remember, this is right after he says, no more kings on the throne of David after Jeconiah, after Jehoiachin, we're all done. And then he says, but once I regather the sheep, I'm going to bring a righteous branch. Okay. What have we found of Judah so far? We've found a bunch of unrighteous branches. Okay. They're the, you know, the black sheep of the family. They're the bad branches on the family tree. But God has preserved a righteous branch. In Isaiah, it refers to the same righteous branch, and he says that it's going to be a shoot out of the stump of Jesse. Okay. It's as if the whole line of David is a giant tree, and it's cut to the ground. And then out of this dead stump is going to grow a new sprout, okay? this righteous branch. And it says, he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. Sound familiar? This is the king as he was supposed to be, the one who actually keeps the covenant. 
Verse 6, in, the day, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. Notice that even Israel comes back in this picture. Not only is Judah going to be saved, but even the northern tribes, all of Israel is going to be reunited. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Now here's what you're missing, because you're reading that title in English. Okay? This is Jehovah Sidkenu, or Yahweh Sidkenu. Okay? And what is the current king on the throne that we started this story with? Zedekiah. Sidka. Yah. Okay. And this is Yah Sidka. Okay. It's an intentional play on Zedekiah's name. In fact, their names are almost synonymous. This means the Lord our righteousness, and Zedekiah means righteous is the Lord. Okay. And so basically, Zedekiah is not the destined king. He is not the next one in the line. He doesn't even really make it into the list of God's agenda. He will bring the real Zedekiah. The Lord our righteous. Now, now a second thing. Many, many biblical names have reference to the name of God. Nathaniel, Daniel, right? El being this name for God. And it's the same thing with Yah. So Yeshua, right? Yah saves. Okay. We find this consistently throughout many of the names in the Old Testament. But this one is different because it's not just Yah, but the entire tetragrammaton. Yehovah is a part of this name, right? The name that God doesn't share is somehow attached to this coming king in a way where he's identified as the Lord, our righteousness. And not just, not just that single syllable reference, the full name of God is a part of the name of this coming king. Okay. There is this subtle, but consistent commentary in the Old Testament that the Messiah who is to come is more than human and is somehow so closely aligned with Jehovah himself that he really does share his identity. We saw that quite a lot in Isaiah, but we see it again here. But do you see how when we put this whole thing together, how the structure tells us more? How we start with Zedekiah and we wind backwards and then we take a running sprint and we leap right past Zedekiah to the promised and coming king. Okay. Verse 7, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. But instead, as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country, and out of the countries where he has driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. Now, we just read this last week, word for word. But we find it here again, and the reason it's repeated is because now it's tied to this coming king. This is going to happen through the branch, the righteous branch of David, the Lord, our righteousness. There's going to be this reassembling and restoration of Israel. Now, the rest of chapter 23 here focuses on the prophets. You may remember Jeremiah challenges three different groups consistently, the kings, the prophets, and the priests, okay, as being collectively misleading Judah into wickedness and sin. And so here now he addresses the false prophets. Verse 9, concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me, all my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord. 
And so Jeremiah speaks here, and notice that he's having a very visceral response that has something to do with the Lord and the prophets. Now, when you read there, my heart is broken within me, that makes it sound like he's sad. But remember, the heart in Jewish mindset is not like our broken heart. That's not the idea. He's basically saying his brain is broken. Okay? He's having a mental breakdown. Okay? His inner self is shattered over this. He says that he's like a drunken man. He's, he's overcome by these things. He's behaving erratically. He says, because of the Lord and because of his holy words, verse 10, for the land is full of adulterers because the curse the land mourns and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil and their might is not right. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house, I have found their evil, declares the Lord. And so again, we see Jeremiah himself being the battlefield for God's will and God's word and how he feels about the false prophets and the judgment that is to come. And so now we get a proclamation over these prophets. Verse 12, Therefore their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness, in which they shall be driven and fall. For I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. In the prophets of Samaria I saw an unsavory thing. They prophesied by Baal and led many people of Israel astray. Okay, in the northern kingdom, there were false prophets as well. Remember, Elijah stands up against 400 prophets of Baal who are leading Israel to worship Baal instead of Jehovah. But it's worse, he says, in Jerusalem, verse 14. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I've seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. He doesn't say, you're as bad as Samaria. He says, you're as bad as Sodom. Israel uh, was judged, and then Judah didn't learn from their mistakes and continuously and progressively got worse and worse. Verse 15, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I'll feed them with bitter food and give them poison water to drink, for from the prophets of Jerusalem ungodliness has gone out into the land. Okay? So it's not just that they didn't bring about godliness. It's not just that they didn't call the people to repentance. They actually taught them evil. They actually schooled them in wickedness. They actually moved them further away from the Lord. Verse 16. Thus says the Lord of the hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. So imagine here, Jeremiah is speaking to the people and he says, stop listening to all of these prophets who are just pumping you up with an empty hope. They speak visions of their own minds and not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually that those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. Okay. So notice the diagnosis and the prescription. If you think of the prophets as doctors here, they come to the sick and they go, you're fine. They come to the dying and they go, you're going to turn out okay. Okay, the prognosis is good. Okay. And so the criticism here isn't something that Jeremiah needs divine insight for. He can just read the book of the covenant, Deuteronomy, and then look at the lives of the people and then listen to the words of the prophet and see that things don't line up. Verse 18, for who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? 
or who to pay attention to his word and listened. He says none of them are actually sitting before the Lord and getting his message. They're speaking from their own hearts and not from God's. Verse 19, behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest, it will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he's executed and accomplished the intents of his heart. Okay. And so the people stubbornly follow their own heart. The prophets envision things from their own hearts, and God's going to bring about his will according to his heart, which is consequence. In the latter days, you will understand it clearly. In other words, when it happens, everyone will know the truth. There will be no, be no more guessing on who is God's prophet and who is not, because their words will not come to pass, and they'll experience the same judgment that they say that God is not sending. Verse 21, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they'd stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to the people, and they would have turned them from their evil way or from their evil of their deeds. If they were my prophets, they would have called the people to repentance instead of just giving them an assurance that everything was as it should be. Here, it talks a lot about knowing and discerning the difference between the word of the Lord and a false word. And the first thing we see here is that the word of the Lord calls us to repentance. James says something similar. He says the word of God is like a mirror. And when we go to it, we should see where our faces is dirty and then flee to the cross for cleansing. But if we use that mirror vainly just to go, look at how beautiful I am, we don't understand what it's for. It doesn't serve its purpose. Okay? In fact, there is probably nothing we can do that is more dangerous than using the Bible to justify ourselves. To opening it up, reading that, and go, that sounds like me, I must be okay. That's just not what the Bible was meant to do. In fact, Paul says in Galatians that it's like a tutor. Okay? The teacher you have with, who, when you're a child, and the whole job of this tutor is just to raise you up to a person and point you to Christ. It's just to constantly show you your need for salvation. And so if you read the Bible in a way that it shows that you have no need for God, you're reading it wrong. And when a teacher t brings the Bible to you and brings it to you as if you have no need for God, then their word cannot be trusted. The word calls us to repentance. Like Martin Luther said, the Christian life is one of continual repentance. Growth in the Christian life always looks like repentance. Okay. Verse 23, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? The idea here is false prophets. Do you think just because you've you know, conspired behind closed doors to falsely represent me that I don't know about it? Do you think that just because you didn't talk about your plans in the temple that I didn't overhear you? He says, don't I fill heaven and earth? Verse 25, I've heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I've dreamed, I've dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy lies? And who prophesy the deceit of their own heart. Who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another. Even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. Let the prophet who has a dream tell a dream. But let him who speaks my word speak it faithfully. 
He says, you want to talk about your dreams and visions? Fine, do it. He's like, but what really matters is the one who speaks my word. And then he goes on to contrast his word with the words of the false prophet. So look at this. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord. He says, these prophets' ministry, there's no substance. There's no nourishment. It's just straw. It's not, nothing that will give you strength. It's nothing that will empower you. It's nothing that will make you healthy. It's just empty. And then verse 29, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord? So you know it's God's word when it purifies, when it cleanses, when it transforms. And then finally it says here, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Now, to be fair, and I think it's really appropriate to say it at this time, this is not all the word of the Lord does. The word of the Lord can also encourage. The word of the Lord can also build up and admonish and even affirm. Right? When we read the Bible, sometimes we are in need of comfort. But sometimes we are in need, in co- need of confrontation. And here, basically it says uh, that the word is like the hammer and we are like the rock. Okay. And it is a very heavy metal hammer. Okay. And the problem is, Oftentimes, we bang ourselves, our thoughts, our choices against the word of God, hoping to reshape it in a way that's more comfortable. But is one of the primary ways of the word to break. And therefore, it is one of the primary goals of our encounter with the word to be broken. One of the things that the Bible breaks very well is false pride, self-righteousness. Right? Our willingness to stand and think that we are good as we stand on our own without help. Thank you very much. But notice all three of these metaphors, wheat and fire and hammer, they all talk about change. When you have an encounter with wheat, you walk away filled. When you have an encounter with fire, you walk away purified. When you have an encounter with the hammer, you walk away broken. And the problem with the prophets was they were maintaining the status quo. You're fine. Everything's fine. Everything's going to be fine. Verse 30, therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declare the Lord, who steal my words from one another. They don't even settle to make things up for God. They also borrow from their other false prophets and take those messages as their own. Verse 31, behold, I'm against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declares, declares the Lord. Why? Because they're using that to embolden their opinions or maybe to embolden their reputations. When they say, thus saith the Lord, it's not because thus saith the Lord, but because when they say that, they have the notoriety, they have the attention, they have the authority. But it's not theirs to use. They're taking the Lord's name in vain. Verse 32, Behold, I'm against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness when I did not send them or charge them. So they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. When one of this people or a prophet or a priest asks you, what is the burden of the Lord? Now this word here for burden is one that's used very heavily 
throughout the prophetic books of an oracle, of a word of the Lord. But it actually is literally a burden. And so when somebody comes to you, Jeremiah, and says, what is the burden of the Lord? All I want you to respond, Jeremiah, what is the word of the Lord? You shall say to them, you are the burden, and I'll cast you off, declares the Lord. Okay. He's playing on this word burden. So what has God put on your heart? And he says, actually, you're really weighing on God's heart, and he's going to throw you away. Right? We've talked about all the creativity in the book of Jeremiah because he's got a hard-hearted audience. Again, he surprises them. So now, if they even ask, hey, Jeremiah, what's the word? He says, the word is judgment. Okay. He says, um, verse 34, as for the prophet or priest to one of the people who says the burden of the Lord, I'll punish that man and his household. God takes his name and those who say they represent him very seriously. Verse 35, thus shall you still say to everyone to his neighbor and everyone to his brother, what is the Lord answered or what is the Lord spoken? But the burden of the Lord you shall mention no more, for the burden is every man's own word, and you pervert the words of the living God, the Lord of the hosts, our God. He says to Jeremiah here, don't even talk about the burden of the Lord anymore. It's overused and false and carries no truth anymore. So just set that language aside. Verse 37, thus you shall say to the prophet, what has the Lord answered you or what has the Lord spoken? But if you say the burden of the Lord, thus says the Lord, because you've said these words, the burden of the Lord, when I sent you saying, you shall not say the burden of the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will surely lift you up and cast you away from my presence, you and the city I gave you and your fathers. And I will bring upon you everlasting reproach and perpetual shame, which shall not be forgotten. So we get a general overview of the two speakers here. Jeremiah, the one faithful prophet. There's a handful of others that we'll encounter throughout the book. There's his disciple Baruch. There's another prophet named Uriah. Uh, there's a reference uh, next week to the prophet Micah. Okay? But for the most part, the prophets stand in for this large group of false prophets who are all bringing messages of peace, and they'll come into play next week as well. Now I want to finish up here with chapter 24. And again, Jeremiah has a vision. Okay, and I'm just going to spoil it for you. It's a vision of two baskets of figs. One of them ripe and good and tasty, like the kind that you would take, you know, as a gift basket. And the other one's just gone completely rotten. Okay. And he sees both of them. But it's easy to miss... Uh, how surprising this message is. So pay attention. Chapter 24, verse 1. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem, Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen, the metal workers, and had brought them to Babylon, the Lord showed me this vision. Okay. So again, get the setting. Zedekiah's on the throne again. We're at the very end, the final rule. Je Jehoiachin's been carried away all of the great wealth of the temple has been carried away. All of the cream of the people have been carried away. In that day, Jeremiah has a vision. Okay. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? I said, figs. The good figs, very good, and the bad figs, very bad so bad they cannot be eaten. Okay. Now, what God's going to do is he's going to talk about the two people groups we now have, the deported and the remnant. 
the ones who were carried off to Babylon and the ones that are still in Jerusalem. And you can see that those two people groups are two baskets of figs, one ripe and good and the other bad and rotten. But don't miss how the remnant and the survivors in Jerusalem are probably thinking about themselves. Who would they assume that they are? The good figs, because they're the ones that are still standing. It's as if God brought in this giant wave that washed away all the wicked, but we're still here. We're still standing. Everything is fine. We are the righteous as proved by the fact that we have suffered less. Right? And this tendency to think that bad things happen to bad people runs through the warp and woof of the Old Testament. It runs through the human heart. And so you can imagine Jerusalem here thinking, all right, now God's done his work. The judged are judged. We're still standing, so we must be fine. But look at verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I've sent away from this place to the land of Chaldeans. Who are the ripe figs? The ones that are gone. The ones who were taken to Babylon. Verse 6. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. Again, we find Jeremiah's call sign, right? To build up, to tear down, to root up, and to plant. And he says, but these ones, the ones I've sent into exile, all of my plans for them are good, for a future and for a hope. Now I'm going to build and now I'm going to plant them. Okay. Verse 7 I will give them a heart to know that I'm the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. What makes them the good figs there? Repentance. And why did they repent? Because they hit bottom. Because they are on the other side of God's judgment and discipline. Because they have nothing left. Because they can no longer deny the word of Jeremiah or hold out any hope that it can't happen to us. All that makes them the good figs is that they've given up. They've finally surrendered. They're finally desperate for God. And I love how C.S. Lewis says that it is God's divine humility that he will take us even when there's nothing left for us to stand on. Even when we're waving the flag because the ship is going down. God could have easily said to these people, oh yeah, now you're willing to repent. Why didn't you repent when you had good things, but now you have nothing? But Lewis points out that's God's divine humility. He stoops to conquer. He brings these people to the end of themselves, like we talk about in, in AA meetings, right, of hitting rock bottom, where the only place you can look is up. And he receives that uplook, and he says, finally, now I can bring about goodness. Now I can build, and now I can plant. And then you have the survivors, the remnants in Jerusalem, and we're out of fig baskets, right? You know who they're going to be. And so what does he say? Verse 8, but thus says the Lord, like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so I will treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnants of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. Now pause. When is he saying this again? Right when Zedekiah comes into power. Do you see how silly his... His envoy sounds at the beginning of the night now. In the very beginning of Zedekiah's rule, Jeremiah has this vision of the figs and lays out the destiny of Zedekiah as being of the bad figs. Why? Because they still haven't repented. 
Because they still haven't gotten the message and turned around. So instead here, he says, those who remain in the land and those who dwell in the land of Egypt, I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a reproach and a byword, a taunt and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send sword and famine and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave them and their fathers. Now, when we read that at first, it sounds almost like God is playing favorites. And so he chose the ones he's already judged, and he goes, I have good things for you. And then the ones he's about to judge, he says, I have nothing but bad things for you. But it's actually God's unrelenting drive to lead us to repentance. He's not done with the remnant because they're not done either, because they're not willing to repent. And so the only thing here that makes them the bad figs, just like what made the good figs good, is their unrepentance. And part of that is fueled by this idea that they think the fact that they're still standing is a sign of God's blessing. When in actuality, it's just his long suffering. It's just his patience. And so they're again going to mistake his kindness for indifference, for sanctioning their lives. And so the only option is judgment. And so we see now the irony of Zedekiah going, maybe God's capable of doing the wondrous deeds he did in days of old. But he's been completely resistant to God's work in his own time, which is the work of the word of God, the hammer, which is the work of the word of God, the fire, which is not peace, peace when there is no peace, but is repent while there is still time to repent, where there is turn around because God is able and willing to make all things right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this unrelenting love. But I pray as well, Lord, for those of us who know what it's like to be disciplined who know what it's like to be broken by your word, who knows what it's like to come to the end of ourselves and foolishly beg, sheepishly beg you to come and save us. Thank you, Lord, for the good news that's here for those of us like that. Lord, that when we're like the younger brother in Jesus' parable and we come home rehearsing our speeches and willing to settle for less, because at least there's food in your household. You're already looking out the window. You're already running to us in the street. You're already calling for the calf to be killed, for the robe to be draped around us, for the ring to be put on our finger. Alexander Pope was wrong. He said to err is human and to forgive is divine but it's deeper than that. You are so ready, so ready to save us, a very present help in times of trouble, even when we bring that trouble on ourselves. I pray, Lord, that we would be like the good figs. Blessed are those, you say, Jesus, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, not those who are filled with righteousness, but those who know they don't have it and are desperate as if they need it to survive. 
I pray it'd be the same for us. I pray that we would hunger and thirst and that we would lean into your promise, Lord, that because we hunger and thirst, we shall be filled. Amen. Let it be so, Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a good night.